0: Jesus' teaching in Genesareth and Banks of Jordan, part 6. Cure of Lepers at Tarachia. Jesus instructs his disciples in similitudes. Jesus did not go into the city. Taking a bypath, he drew near the southern wall not far from the gate. On the exterior side of this wall was a row of huts built purposely for the lepers. Jesus approached them. He said to the disciples, Stand at some distance and call out the lepers. Tell them to follow me, and I will cleanse them. When they come out, do you stand at a distance that ye may not be alarmed nor contract stain. Moreover, do not speak of what ye shall see, for ye remember the fury of the Nazarenes. You must not scandalize anyone. And Jesus went on a little toward the Jordan, when the disciples called to the sick, Come out and follow the prophet of Nazareth. He will help you. When the disciples saw the poor sufferers coming out of their huts, they hurried away. Jesus, turning out of the road that led to the city, walked slowly toward the region of the Jordan. Five men of different ages answered the disciples' invitation and issued from the cells in the city wall. They were clothed in white garments, long and wide, but wore no girdle. On their head was a cowl from which fell over the face a black flap with holes in it for the eyes. They followed Jesus in single file to a retired spot where he paused. There the first threw himself at his feet and kissed the hem of his robe. Jesus turned, laid his hand upon the leper's head, prayed over him, blessed him, and bade him step aside. He did in like manner to the second, and so on even to the fifth and last. They now removed their masks, uncovered their hands, and the crust of the leprosy peeled entirely off. Jesus warned them against the sins by which they had brought upon themselves that sickness, told them how they should henceforth conduct themselves, and commanded them not to say anything about his having cured them. But they replied, Lord, thou didst come so suddenly to us, so long have we hoped for thee, so long sighed for thee, and we had no one to tell thee of our misery, no one to bring thee to us. Lord, thou didst come to us so unexpectedly. How can we restrain our joy? How can we be silent about thy miracle? Jesus repeated that they must not speak of it until they had fulfilled the law. They should show themselves to the priests that they might see that they were clean, offer the prescribed sacrifices, and perform the prescribed purifications. Then they might proclaim their cure. At these words the five men again fell on their knees, giving thanks, and then went back to their cells. Jesus continued his way to the Jordan, and there rejoined the disciples. These five lepers were not closely confined. There was a certain space marked out for them, around which they could go. No one went near them, and it was only from a distance that anyone spoke to them. Their food was deposited in a certain place on platters, which were not used a second time. The lepers broke and buried them. A new dish of little value was given them, with every fresh supply of food. Jesus walked with the disciples some distance, toward the Jordan, through delightful groves and avenues, and in a retired spot rested and took some refreshment. After that, they crossed the river in a little boat. Boats of this kind lay at intervals along the shore for the accommodation of travelers, who could by that means ferry themselves over. The workmen, living at different distances along the shore, saw that the boats were taken back to where they belonged. Jesus, with the four disciples, did not journey close to the lake, but up toward the east to the city of Galad. The four disciples with him were Parmenus of Nazareth, Saturn, and two brothers, one called Sarthysis, the other Aristobulus. Sarthysis afterward became the bishop of Athens. Aristobulus later on was associated to Barnabas. I heard that with the word brother, but he was his spiritual brother only. He was a great deal with Paul and Barnabas, but I think he became a bishop of Brittany. Lazarus had brought the two brothers to Jesus. They were foreigners, I think Greeks, whose father had settled lately in Jerusalem. They were shipping merchants. Some of their slaves or servants, when journeying with the caravan, had gone with their beasts of burden to hear John's teaching, and had been baptized by him. It was by means of these servants that the young men's parents heard of John and Jesus. Taking their sons, they went themselves to John, and both father and sons were baptized and circumcised, after which the whole family were moved to Jerusalem. They were not without means, but later on they relinquished all their wealth in favor of the rising community of Christians. But the young men were tall, dark-complexioned, and clever. Both had received a polite education. They were fine-looking young men, active and skillful at arranging things, and making all comfortable on journeys. A little river watered the country up which Jesus was now journeying, and at a certain place he crossed it. The prophet Elias had once been in these parts. Jesus recalled the fact and, during the whole journey, instructed the disciples in simple similitudes borrowed from various conditions of life, from the several professions, from the groves and stones and plants and places that presented themselves on the road. The disciples questioned him upon all that had happened to him in Sepphoris and Nazareth. He spoke to them of marriage and connection with the dispute he had had with the Pharisees at Sepphoris upon the question of divorce. The conjugal bond is indissoluble. Divorce was granted by Moses in favor of a barbarous, sinful people only. The disciples questioned Jesus also upon the reproach made him by the Nazarenes that he had no love for his neighbor, and in his own city, which ought to be the nearest and dearest to him, he would work no cures. They asked if one's fellow townsmen should not be looked upon as neighbors. Then Jesus gave them a long instruction upon the love of the neighbor, proposing to them all kinds of similitudes and questions, the former of which he drew from different states of life in the world. He dwelt long upon them, and pointed out place after place that rose up in the distance, and said in which such or such an industry was especially pursued. He spoke, too, of those that were to follow him. They were, he said, to leave father and mother, and yet obey the fourth commandment. They must treat their native city as he had done, in Nazareth, if so it deserved of them, and still exercise the love of the neighbor. God, their heavenly father, and he who had been sent by him, had the first claim to their love. Then he spoke of the love of a neighbor, such as the world understands it, and of the publicans of Gelad, which they were then passing, who loved those most that paid them the highest tax. He pointed afterward to Dawa Manutha, which lay to the left, and said, Those tent-makers and carpet-weavers love as the neighbor those that buy many tents from them, but their own poor they leave without shelter. He then borrowed a comparison from the sandal-makers, which had reference to the vain curiosity of the people of Nazareth. "'I have no need,' he said, "'of their homage, "'which they clothe in beautiful colors "'like the variegated sandals "'in the workshop of the sandal-maker, "'but which will afterward be trodden underfoot in the mud.' And again, pointing to a certain city, he said, "'They are like the sandal-maker of that city. "'They slight and disparage their own children, "'and so the latter are forced to go abroad. "'But when among strangers... They have learned a new style of making beautiful green sandals. Their fellow citizens recall them through desire to see their work. They boast of the new-fashioned articles which, like the glory attached to them, are soon to be trodden underfoot. Then Jesus put the question, Suppose a traveler tears one of his sandals and goes to a sandal makers to buy one. Will the latter present him with the other one also? In this way, Jesus drew comparisons from fishermen, architects, and other avocations. The disciples asked him where he intended to fix his abode, whether he would build a house at Capernaum. He answered that he would not build upon sand, and he mentioned another city that he had to found. I cannot so well understand the conversation between Jesus and the disciples when they were walking. When they were seated, I could hear better. I remember this much, however, that Jesus expressed his desire for a little boat, that he might go here and there upon the lake. He wanted to teach on water as well as on land. They now went into the country of Galatotus. Abraham and Lot had sojourned here, and even at that early period had divided the country between them. Jesus referred to that circumstance. He told the disciples also, in order to avoid scandalizing anyone, they should not speak of the lepers who had lately been cleansed. He warned them to be particularly circumspect, now to cause no excitement, The Nazareans would certainly stir up alarm and hatred. He told them that on the Sabbath, he would again teach in Capernaum. They should then have a chance to see the love of the neighbor and the gratitude of men exemplified, for the welcome extended to him this time would be very different from that received on the occasion of the cure of the centurion's son. They may have been journeying for some hours to the northeast, around a curve of the lake when they arrived near Galad to the south of Gamala. As in most of the cities in this district, the population was made up of heathens and Jews. The disciples were disposed to enter the city, but Jesus told them that, if he went to the Jews of the place, they would neither welcome him nor give him anything, and if to the heathens, the Jews would be scandalized and would pursue him with calumny. He predicted the entire destruction of the city, saying that iniquity abounded in it. The disciples spoke of a certain Agabus, a prophet living at that time in Argo, city of that region. For a long time, he had numerous visions of Jesus and his doings, and had lately uttered some prophecies regarding him. Later on, Agabus joined the disciples. Jesus informed them that Agabus was the son of Herodian parents, who had reared him in the errors of their sect, but he had afterward rejected them. He called the sect's beautifully covered sepulchers full of corruption. The Herodians were numerous on the west side of the Jordan and Perea, Traconatus, and especially in Eternia. They lived very privately, and had some kind of mysterious organization by which they secretly helped one another. Many poor people applied to them, and received immediate relief. These Herodians were outwardly great sticklers for the prescriptions of the Pharisees. In secret, they aimed at freeing Judea from the Roman yoke, and consequently were closely attached to Herod. They were something like the modern Freemasons. I understood from Jesus' words that they feigned to be very holy and magnanimous, but in reality they were hypocrites. Jesus and the disciples remained at some distance from Galad, an inn resorted to by publicans. Quite a number of them were gathered there at the time, to whom the heathens paid taxes on their imported goods. They did not appear to know Jesus, and he did not address them. He taught, however, of the nearness of the kingdom and of the Father who had sent his Son into the vineyard. He gave them very clearly to understand that he himself was the Son, adding that all who did his will are children of the Father. But these last words perplexed them. Jesus exhorted them to baptism. Many were converted and asked whether or not they should be baptized by John's disciples. He answered that they should wait patiently until his own disciples baptized in those parts. The disciples also asked their master today whether his baptism was different from that of John because they had received the latter. Jesus, in his answer, made a distinction between the two, calling John's a baptism of penance. And in Jesus' instruction to the publicans, something entered relating to the Trinity, something about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost and their unity, though expressed in other terms. The disciples were not at all reserved before the publicans of this place. As Jesus went in Nazareth, had stopped with the Assyrians, the circumstance that drew upon him the reproaches of the Pharisees. The disciples put questions to him concerning that sect. I heard Jesus answering in sentences expressive of praise, though interrogative in form, mentioning various ways by which justice and fraternal love might be wounded. He asked after each, Do the Assyrians do this? Do the Assyrians do that? etc. Near Galad, Some possessed, who were running around in a desolate region outside the city, began to cry after Jesus. They were perfectly abandoned. They robbed and killed anyone that ventured within their reach, and committed diverse kinds of excesses. Jesus looked back after them and gave them his blessing. They instantly ceased to rave, were freed from the evil spirit, and hurrying to him, fell at his feet. He exhorted them to penance and baptism though bidding them wait for the latter until his disciples should go to Enon to baptize. The country about Galad was rocky, of a white brittle formation. Jesus and the disciples went from here across the mountain, to the south of which lay Gamala, and took a northwesterly direction to the lake. He passed Garassa, which at about one hour's distance lay between two ridges of the mountain. Nearby was a kind of morass formed from a brook whose waters were dammed up, and his only other outlet into the lake was through a ravine. Jesus related to the disciples some incidents connected with this place. The people of Herassa had once upon a time ridiculed a prophet on account of his misshapen form, whereupon he had said to them, Listen, O ye that insult my misfortune! Your children shall remain obdurate when one greater than I shall teach and heal in this place. Troubled at the loss of their unclean herds, they will not rejoice at the salvation that has offered them. This was a prophecy regarding Jesus Christ and the driving of Satan into the swine. Jesus told the disciples what awaited him in Capernaum, that the Pharisees of Sephorus, exasperated by his teaching upon divorce, had sent their emissaries to Jerusalem, that the Nazareans had joined their complaints to theirs, and that a whole troop of Pharisees from Jerusalem, Nazareth, and Sephorus, was now dispatched to Capernaum to be on the watch for him, and to dispute against him. Just at this moment they encountered several immense caravans of heathens with mules and oxen. The latter had great thick jaws, broad, heavy horns, and went along with lowered head. It was a trading caravan going from Syria into Egypt. They had come over into the country of Jerasa, partly in ships, and partly over the bridge of the Jordan higher up. There were many among them who had joined the caravan for the purpose of hearing the prophet. A company waited upon Jesus to know whether the prophet would teach in Capernaum, but he told them that they should not now go to Capernaum, but encamp on the declivity of the mountain to the north of Gerasa, whether the prophet would soon go. There was something in Jesus' tone and manner that made them respond, Master, thou too art a prophet. And his glance roused in them the doubt as to whether he might not himself be the one for whom they were in search. When Jesus entered the inn outside Gerasa with his disciples there to lodge, the crowd of heathens and travelers was so great that he left at once, but the disciples stayed with the heathens, talking to them of the prophet and instructing them. Gerasa lay on the declivity of a valley about an hour and a half from the lake. It was larger and cleaner than Capernaum, and, like almost all the cities of these parts, it had a mixed population of heathens and Jews. The former had their own temples latter formed the poor and oppressed portion of the inhabitants, although they had their synagogues and rabbi. There was much business carried on, and the trades were numerous, for the caravans from Syria and Asia passed through Gerasa, going down into Egypt. I saw before the city gate a long building, seven and a half minutes in length, wherein were manufactured long iron bars and pipes. They forged the bars flat, and then soldered them together into a circular form. Leaden pipes also were made. The furnaces at which they worked were not fed with wood, but with some kind of a black mass dug out of the earth. The iron they used came from Argo. The heathens of the caravan had encamped to the north of Carasso, and on the southern side of the rising mountain. To the same place some heathens belonging to the city had come, also some Jews, but these latter stood apart by themselves. The heathens were differently clad from the Jews, their tunics reaching only halfway down the lower limbs. Some of them must have been rich, for I saw women who had their hair so braided with pearls as to form a perfect cap. Some wore on the top of the head above their veil, braided with pearls into a little basket. Jesus ascended the mountainside. Where walking about he taught the crowds. He went among them here and there, and at times he stood still, keeping up a kind of conversation with the travelers. He addressed them questions, which he answered himself in words full of instruction. He asked, for instance, are ye?" What impelled you to take this journey? What do you expect from the prophet? And then he taught them what they must become, in order to share in salvation. He said, Blessed are they that have journeyed so long, and so toilsome a way to seek salvation. But woe to them among whom it arises, and who will not receive it. He explained the prophecy of the Messiah, and the call of the heathens, told of that of the three kings, of whom these people knew, and also of their expedition in obedience to it. In the caravan were some people from that country and city, where the envoy of Abgaras of Edessa had stayed overnight near the brick kilns, on his return journey with Jesus's picture and letter. Jesus did not cure any sick here. The strangers were for the most part well disposed, but there were some among them who regretted having undertaken such a journey. They expected to hear something very different from the prophet's words something more flattering to the senses. After these instructions, into to which Jesus introduced many similitudes, he went with his four disciples to dine with the Jewish doctor of the law, a Pharisee, who dwelt outside the city. He invited Jesus to be his guest, though his pride prevented appearing at the instruction given the heathens. There were present at table some other Pharisees from the city. They received Jesus in a friendly manner, which, however, was only feigned, for they were hypocrites. Circumstance occurred during the course of the meal that gave Jesus a suitable opportunity for telling them the truth. A heathen slave or servant laid upon the table a beautiful dish of many colors filled with confectionery, made of spices kneaded together in the shape of birds and flowers. One of the guests raised the alarm. There was, he said, something unclean on the dish, and he pushed the poor slave back, called him opprobrious names, and put him last among the other servants. Jesus interposed, Not the dish, but what is in it is full of uncleanness. The master of the house replied, Thou mistakest, those sweetmeats are perfectly clean and very costly. Jesus responded in words like these, They are truly unclean. They are nothing else than sensual pleasures made of the sweat, the blood, the marrow, and the tears of widows, orphans, and the poor. And he read them a severe lesson upon their manner of acting, their prodigality, their covetousness, and their hypocrisy. They grew wrathy, but could make no reply. They quitted the house, leaving Jesus alone with the host. This latter was very smooth and affable toward Jesus, but it was all hypocrisy. He was hoping in this way to entrap him and get something at last to report against him to the committee at Capernaum. Toward evening, Jesus again taught the heathens on the mountain. When they asked him whether they should be baptized by John and expressed a wish to settle in Palestine, Jesus counseled them to put off their baptism until better instructed. He told them, moreover, to go first of all across the Jordan to Upper Galilee and into the region of Adama, where they would find good people and heathens already instructed, and where he himself would again teach. It was dark and Jesus taught by torchlight. The instruction over, he left his hearers and went to the shore of the lake and down to the spot where Peter's men were waiting for him with a boat. It was late. The three sailors made use of lights when they disembarked about half an hour below Beseda Julius. Peter and Andrew, with the help of their servants, had built especially for his use the little boat in which Jesus had crossed. There were not only mariners and fishermen, but shipbuilders also. Peter owned three vessels, one of them very large, as long as a house. Jesus's little boat held about ten men. It was oval in form, almost like an egg. The forepart and stern were enclosed spaces for storing and affording accommodations for washing the feet. In the center rose the mast with poles extended from it to the sides of the vessel for support. Above and around these poles swung the sails. The seats were arranged around the mast. Jesus often taught from this little bark, which he used likewise to cross from point to point to sail about among the other ships. The large vessels had around the lower part of the mast decks formed like terraces or galleries, one above another. They were supported by posts placed at regular intervals, so that a view could be had throughout them from side to side. They were furnished with canvas curtains that could be drawn so as to form separate compartments like little cells. The poles supported the mast had projecting rounds to facilitate climbing. On either side of the vessel were floating chests, or barrels like wings or fins, to prevent its being overturned in a storm. They could be filled with water or emptied according as it was necessary for the ship to ride more lightly, or sink to a greater depth. The fish caught was sometimes preserved in them. At either end of the vessel were movable planks, which, on being shoved out, facilitated access to the casts, to neighboring boats, or to the nets. When not used for fishing purposes, the vessels were held in readiness to transport caravans and travelers across the lake. The sailors and servants of the fishermen were, for the most part, pagan slaves. Peter owned some.